0: Welcome to Pudo Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by Carrie Clatt, columnist, editorial board.
1: Nancy Prayer Johnson, associate editorial board editor.
0: And we have a special guest for you today. Uh, Greg Kassar is the uh, congressman elect in U.S. District 35, which basically runs from Austin down to San Antonio along the I 35 corridor. I, I think. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong in the numbers, I think as far as eligible voters, you got about, maybe about 39% of the district is Travis County and maybe about 38% Bear County, something like that. That's about right. Yeah. And so, um, so this is, uh, you know, he is, uh, for those of you all in San Antonio, he's going to be a, a new Congressman for our, our district. And this is a, a district which, uh, which Lloyd Doggett, uh, had, had, has represented, uh, since the district was created. And, um, he's a former Austin city council member and he's been a, it was a political activist before that. And Greg Cassar, thank you so much. Congratulations on your win. And thank you for joining us.
2: Yeah, no, I'm so, uh, so excited to be here. I've been a fan of the podcast for a while and so, uh, happy that I get to be on it right after coming back from, uh, my
0: orientation in DC. I was going to ask you about that. You were telling me, I didn't realize how long it was. You said it's a two week new member orientation. What, what, what is involved in that, that whole experience?
2: Yeah. So the election was on Tuesday, November, Wraith and on Saturday, you're expected to be in DC. Um, Because in some states, they take longer to count votes because there's more mail in ballots or because the races were closer. For some members, they went not knowing whether they had won or not. Um, And so the orientation includes both the nuts and bolts that you expect in many jobs, right? They get your laptop, teach you how to sign into the iPad, uh, but then also. Um, some really uh, inspirational and cool moments, as I'd mentioned, um, some members came not knowing whether they had won or not. Mm-hmm. And so we had a, a dinner in the Library of Congress, which is a really special uh, dinner that's done uh, of all the, for all, every newly elected Democrat. Um, and Andrea Salinas, uh, who came up against uh, millions and millions of dollars in, uh, in attacks, especially funded by um, sort of some of the cryptocurrency giants, Um she, we found out the, the news called her race in the middle of the dinner. Wow. And so everybody got to stand up and cheer for her. And, uh, and so there were special things like that. I mean. We got to vote for the new House leadership. We're on the House floor for Nancy Pelosi's goodbye speech. We can talk about any of that, but it include yeah, getting your parking pass. Yeah, and man. then on the same day, you know, finding out that the torch is going to get passed
0: uh, in a pretty historic moment. So have, it included all of that. Have you been able to have uh, many conversations with uh, the other members of the San Antonio delegation?
2: Yeah, no, it's um, well, Joaquin, uh, Congressman Castro and I have known each other for a good right. while. He uh, took a chance on me and supported me when I was a 24 year old running for the Uh, for the Austin City Council, and we've been in touch on San Antonio and Texas issues um, quite a bit. Actually, right after um, uh, Trump was elected president, if you'll recall, there were these uh, ice raids, unannounced ice raids that were all over the state. And we were hearing from constituents in the community um, about seeing ice all over their communities, but the federal government wouldn't confirm it. Um, And so he and I were in touch in the early hours of that morning, and he was the person that actually came out and confirmed that moment. Um, uh, and, and so we've just been through moments that were, you know, helping each other, uh, uh, through the elections, but also some really dark and challenging times. And so he and I, um, have, have stayed really close. Um, uh, Henry Cuellar and I got to hang out at these caucus meetings, uh, because, you know, they go and stick the entire democratic caucus and, well, and
0: uh, and for, I think many of our listeners know you supported his, his primary opponent, Jessica. Was right. yeah, is, he, is he okay with that now? Yeah, you won't. I was right? going <laughs> to talk
2: about us eating, eating breakfast and talking with the folks from Bolivia that were there in the caucus room. Well, um, you know, um, Jessica and I, yeah, were yeah. on a slate together quite a bit sure. during the during the primary. But as I made it clear to him throughout. Uh, that primary um, I think you know we we all need to respect each other and and respect who the voters choose to to send and uh, he and I actually uh, recently even though I'm still just a congressman-elect not sworn in yet uh, I got a chance to to, to work with him, Congress and Congressman Doggett on a really significant constituent case recently, and when I explain it, you know, we can't go fully into deal t- details, but some constituents that were in some real uh, public safety uh, had a real public safety threat, real life or death uh, question, uh, and and Congressman Doggett, you know, known as one of the most progressive Democrats in the delegation, Congressman Cuellar, one of the more conservative members of the delegation, you know, when we're talking about helping people in Texas, none of that applied, they, you know, we coordinated with federal agencies, federal law enforcement and, and the constituents, uh, cases resolved and folks are in a much better, much safer situation. And so, you know, there's all the stuff that you see in the news that you get asked about on the podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't, and I, and I, My uh, trouble I don't hold it against <laughs> you. No, that's, that, that's what I listen forward to. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, you know, really, um, some really on, on so many issues, there's going to be a lot of shared interest and shared work to do. Um, so yeah, so I've got to spend some time with him. I haven't gotten to spend as much time with um, um, with Congressman Gonzalez yet, but but look forward
0: to. You know, you obviously you were very familiar with San Antonio before this campaign, and and living roughly an hour away. But the the nature of this, you know, where you're you're hoping to represent a district that that has so many so many voters in the San Antonio area. I mean, it it was gonna. Uh, automatically going to compel you to spend more time here get get more familiar with San Antonio and have people in San Antonio become more familiar with you is there are there things that stand out to you about w- w- your experiences over the past year spending time in San Antonio and when you look at the, the needs or the challenges that this community has what are the what are the, some of the takeaways you have
2: the you know I'm di- I mean, against I gerrymandering. Period. Right, but yeah. I um, and I think it should be ended um, uh, entirely, so that you have uh, citizen uh, boards that help draw districts, so that you wind up with uh, voters choosing their politicians rather than the other way around. Uh, and that's the reason. Then this district is created for a gerrymandered purpose uh, to basically have more Republican representation. Is the reason the districts are drawn in these funky ways. But the the blessing. That came from a process that I totally disagree with is actually being able to link up the west side of San Antonio through the east side of San Antonio down through Hayes County and East Austin because there's actually a lot of shared interest alongside along this corridor. You have um, a lot of our most historic Black and Brown communities um, along this corridor. You have a lot of voters that need. Uh, structural change at the state and fe- and federal level for their lives to to get better. And so when I talk about raising the minimum wage, it doesn't matter whether you're in Kyle, Texas or San Marcos, or if you're in Converse or Pflugerville, uh, all of these places are along I-35, but it's overwhelmingly folks that are working their tails off or have earned uh, Hope uh, the right, I think, to a dignified retirement because they have worked their tails off, um, but who've lived through this era of pandemic where they've lost family members, where people have lost jobs, um, and where some of the biggest corporations and billionaires in the country have made trillions of dollars. And that inequality um, is is what folks repeatedly want to see us work on in D.C. At the local level, there's like baseline services that folks need. And it's going to be different if you're in the west side of San Antonio versus the east side, or if you're in the county uh, and we, we're going to serve those constituent needs. But they also care about the big about the big issues, the big civil rights issues and the big economic justice issues that we face as a country and the democracy issues. I mean, a lot of pundits said folks weren't going to really vote on uh, whether we on January 6th. And then the exit polling showed in lots of interviews and in my conversations with everyday people were like, man, we need we just need we we have have so much of what we have because of the American experiment in democracy. It's not perfect. It was flawed from its inception. But people know that we have to preserve that. Um, and so, though, really, that I think unites these different communities along this gerrymandered district. Um, uh, and and it's it's a lot more there's a lot more similarities than, than the differences.
1: How energetic, how much do you think, uh, or did you get a sense you know, last, in the last two weeks that you were in D.C.? How proactive, how energetic will Democrats be up until they have to turn over leadership to presumably McCarthy or anybody? But-
2: well, amongst the freshmen, you know, there are 35 to 37, depending on how you count it. Uh, new freshman Democrats in the Congress. And when I say, depending on how you count it, it's, I count them, uh, Pat Ryan uh, in New York and Mary Peltola from Alaska who were elected this year, just, you know, they got elected mm-hmm. a few months ago and then elected again. Right. Uh, so 37 of us really active and and pushing. You know, we, uh, I held my first press conference as a member elect there in front of the Capitol alongside uh, Delia Ramirez, uh, who is a young Progressive new member from Chicago, Summer Lee from Pittsburgh, Robert Garcia, um, uh, who's the mayor of Long Beach member elect. All four of us had our first press conference in front of the Capitol asking that during lame duck um, there be protections for uh, our DACA youth uh, so that dreamers aren't potentially separated if we see uh, the courts rip DACA away right now while the Democrats control the House is the time for us to get something done. And then also on the child tax credit, because we know that there are so many kids that were pulled out of poverty and then just so needlessly dropped back into poverty. The program worked. And so if we're going to be passing you know, there's conversation about extending corporate tax breaks uh, during this time period, well, if there's going to be a, anything that's on the corporate tax side, we should at least do child tax credit. So we went and had our first press conference. Um, there, I w- you know, we, we would text each other and call each other. There was no questions of, well, do we think that we need to check with some folks or, mm-hmm. you know, do we think we might step on somebody else's toes or get into somebody else's territory? There was none of that. People said we got elected to pursue these things and let us do it. And I hope that we can keep that spirit alive and pushing. Uh, but I am worried of course about the Senate filibuster, it just goes to show how archaic and sort of senseless that rule is. Um, uh, that even if you can convince a few Republicans, a couple of Republicans, to vote with the Democrats, that you still can't pass some of these policies that have majority support in the country. So, um, um, you know, to me, I think the the least we could do is continue to push and to raise our voices, even if even if we're not sworn in, and then to keep that spirit going. Um, into the incoming session.
1: Did you get a sense, though, from from leadership that they're going to do that? Did you, was there any kind of response? Yeah,
2: well, well yeah, in our caucus meetings, um, they, they said they were going to go push on the House side. Um, of course, they then put, put it on the Senate to say, well, we'll see mm-hmm. um, what the Senate is or isn't willing to do. And that's why um, we have to, the, a lot of the conversation was about how them, them trying to find every, um, every tool we could in the toolbox to get around the filibuster, which includes things like getting things onto must-pass spending bills, um, or or um, or get sort of getting through the reconciliation process. There was less conversation about reconciliation mm-hmm. lately because I know that there's a lot of procedural. Yep. uh pro- process to that again ridiculous right <laughs> why if there's something that the federal government yeah. a majority of yeah. the people sent the majority yeah. of federal representatives
0: to do you should be able to do it well i tend to think you know if if you're going to if you're going to maintain the filibuster and uh it at least require people to actually filibuster you know that th- it's it's That's just right. too it's too easy now you know it, it actually i mean there there've always been problems with it uh you know as you said because it's it's it, it's a way of blocking the majority will but but there was a time when people actually had to physically go through yeah. the difficult Stand task of, of, of filibustering. And now it's just, uh, you know, I guess they send an email or something like that.
2: That's <laughs> right. Whatever it is. <laughs> Whatever I, it is. Somebody, yeah. We didn't get to that part in orientation, but right. I'll, I'll, I'll report back <laughs> for the you're, next podcast. You're,
0: you're mentioning DACA and you hope that maybe something would be done uh, in this lame duck period. Um, immigration has been a, a big issue for you. You're a child of Mexican immigrants. It's something that you've, you focused a lot on. Immigration reform is, I mean, is something we've, it's been talked about for so many years. We haven't had anything really since, I guess, eighty six. And I would assume it's going to get tougher now um, with that slimmer Republican majority in the House. Um, what What are your hopes along those lines? And if you could, if you had the control, what what provisions would you like to see in a in a package of immigration reform?
2: Right. So first, what does it take to get it done? Um, I think it is still on the top of so many voters' minds. Mm -hmm. I think it's another place where when you just pull up whatever D.C. uh, pundit website where they talk about how immigration is a lower priority on voters' minds, uh, that's not what I hear at the doors or in real conversation in the community, certainly not in San Antonio. What I do hear from a lot of people in San Antonio, so many people in mixed status families, right, where you've got voters in the household and some of their siblings or some of, or their parents or somebody else is undocumented. When folks have lowered it on their list, it's not that it's less important. It hasn't gotten down their list of, of urgency. Or ex- it's gone down their list of what they believe we can, can get done. We've The expectations have been so lowered, right? They've seen uh, candidates campaign time and time again saying, we're going to get immigration reform done and it just hasn't gotten done. So I think it's still very high on voters list of important issues. I think they're just telling pollsters less often that Mm -hmm. it's what they want folks to get done because they feel like nothing's ever going to happen. And we can't let that despair sit in. And so I think um, as far as actually getting it done, um, I think it will take a a muscular and aggressive congressional Hispanic caucus. That is where um, a lot of the folks that work hardest on immigration reform are. Um, and there are now nine freshman Democrats headed into the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. We'll have the biggest Democratic Hispanic Caucus ever, yeah. um, and and it includes a lot of Latinos uh, in tough districts and in very blue districts like mine, um, who all care about this issue. And so we are going. Um, uh, we've all talked as freshmen about really prioritizing getting something. Done, um, and and that if that means sitting down with House Republican leadership to get something done, that's what we should. That's what we should do. So, when you asked how much of a priority is it, I think it's mm-hmm. at the top of the list. How can we get it done? I think it needs leadership needs to know it's a priority that needs to be something that unites a large caucus. I think that's the CHC, the Hispanic Caucus. Um, and then, what should such a bill have? Um, I know that the bill that we would get wouldn't be the bill that I would write. And I think everybody needs to say that around the table. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) um, That is the reality, but I, I think it is, we have seen for two, I mean, I remember going to DC, I was an immigrants rights and labor organizer. So I went to DC with hospitality workers and construction workers. Uh, uh, dozens of undocumented folks to go talk about the Gang of Eight bill uh, that was put mm-hmm. back in 2013 when you had Republicans signing on. So I hope that we could sit down at a negotiating table where, again, the Republicans would show up and say we're willing to support some form of a a bill. And that means that, um, you know, there would be trade-offs. Uh, again, since we don't have a negotiation ongoing, can't hard for me to tell you what, what the right trade-offs are, but what I can tell you are what my values are, which is that we should uh, recognize that we're a community of that has been so that it's just so immigrant and that you used to be able to come back and forth so much more easily. And it's, and you actually had less problems. You know, my own uh, grandmother was actually born in El Paso. Uh, she was gr- grew up her entire life in Mexico. Uh, but my great grandmother was pregnant when her husband uh, was killed in the violence in Mexico in the teens. Um, and so she just went right over to El Paso My grandmother was born there where it was safe, had her infancy there, went back to Mexico, grew up there. Then, you know, my parents moved here and I grew up here. Um, And so I think we should just recognize that people move um, instead of uh, so much criminalization that you essentially drive things underground and make it so much more dangerous for people. I also believe that we shouldn't have uh, second-class citizens uh, in our community. And so that means that when folks actually work here And live here and have decided to establish their lives here, then you should have the rights that everybody else have, which includes the right to vote. Uh, I think that's just a baseline thing that we expect in this country. Um, Again, how long is the pathway to citizenship? How expensive is it? How complicated is it? Of course, I'd like for it to be less long and less expensive and less complicated. But if we have to negotiate something, we negotiate it. Uh, but I think people who are here shouldn't be worried about being separated from their families and people that are moving and are going to move anyway. We should make it orderly, have an actual safe and legal path for doing that. Um, and of course, my sense is that on the other side of the table, they'll negotiate some of those things down. But we try to land a, a deal.
0: Well, you know that uh, the, the, when you talk about voting, I mean, that's you know that on the political right, there's 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 this kind of uh, uh, idea that that Democrats are purposely letting people in across the border because they want to change the electorate. And, and right. so there, there's, there's a made up thing, so, what I mean, you're saying. So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a difference, right? Yeah.
2: But there is a difference, right? Yeah. I'm saying, well, there are people coming. We should keep them safe. We should figure out how to adjudicate those cases. Those are real things. As when opposed saying, to this
0: willful sort of like bring trying to But who's change, done that? Yeah, yeah right. Yeah.
2: When there's an argument on one side that's based on <laughs> some real facts and then you bring up, well, the other side says <laughs> yeah. that you're a smuggler. I
0: mean, it's just not I got you, but you, you, <laughs> you, I mean, you understand the, 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 the political firestorm. Yes. Right. Right.
2: I I understand that they make things up and it makes (laughs) my job hard, makes, (laughs) makes, but, but you know, it's true. Now there are real questions or real concerns about, you know, um, um, you know, how do we best process asylum seekers? How do we best deal with issues of global poverty and war? I'm not saying those issues are easy. Um, I'm just saying that, um, uh, the, the political firestorm, the actual yeah. political fight we have, it seems to be, unfortunately, between folks trying to figure out how to grapple with what's happening in the real world in a way that meets our values, that works for our economy, that's compassionate. And then so much of what we hear on the other side is made up stuff. Um, and I think part of my job is to speak, speak out when there's made up stuff.
0: One of the things that you've addressed in Austin, uh, and we're kind of on the front lines of dealing with the homelessness, and I wonder when you look at now that you're you're going to be working at the federal level, what what actions you'd like to see uh, to address what's really a problem in cities across the Huge country? Huge problem in yeah. cities.
2: Um, we, we need significant federal investment in housing uh, and mental health services, um, um, and and frankly, addiction services, oftentimes it's not addiction that actually drives homelessness. It's just when you're living on the street for a certain period of time, your chances of of winding up in substance use issues goes way up. Um, and, you know, not that long ago, you know, you're talking 50, 60 years ago, you had a way smaller proportion of folks living on the streets um, in our ma- major urban cities. Um, and a lot of that was addressed through public housing and the federal social safety net. Of course, it was not equal for all. Um, It was not perfect, but the shredding of so much of that social safety net um, in the Reaganomics era and thereafter, a lot of folks have just been able to, to correlate that right back to some of the large amounts of homelessness that it is that we see. And around the country, as rents go up, homelessness goes up. It's not directly tied to overdoses, not directly tied to mental health cases or substance use. Those things are all correlated. But the main causal factor is housing price goes up. People don't have a place to live. Um, And so I think that we need to do things like repeal the Faircloth Amendment and these other things that were put in place sort of against public housing um, and and go back and say, look, we can make public housing safe. We should be it should be um, uh, it should be more mixed income, uh, but we shouldn't fall into all of the tropes about public housing that ultimately shredded something that now ends up causing us a lot of problems on the back end. Uh, but then, of course, a lot of that housing needs the kinds of services that pe- so that people can succeed, especially if you've lived on the street for a long time. And there's some number of people um, that have gone through, through such trauma that they're going to need more support, but it ends up costing us a lot more in police phone calls and in hospital beds and in emergency stays uh, and the jails. All those things are way more expensive than, you know, caring for some folks Ending a lot of people's homelessness, getting them back on their feet and for the folks who need the extra support, getting them that. But it's tough on a city by city level, you know, because then you're talking about um, the prop- property tax caps, limits. Um, you've got limited resources. The state does not allow. You know, I can't tell you how many times on city council and people in San Antonio city council will tell you this. People, I would say, well, why don't you just tax, pass a millionaire's tax, you know? But of course we're banned from doing that at the state level. So if we want to actually have the revenue to do uh, to uh, have these progressive programs, but you want to generate that revenue in a more progressive way, saying to the Musk's and and Bezoses of the world, well, y'all are the folks that have actually won the most in this economy, so we need you to help out the folks at the bottom. A lot of times, your city is banned or barred from doing that, and so we need folks at the congressional level um, who have those those tools at their disposal to put them in place. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, can you talk about the um Latino vote? i I know you touched on it on immigration, but how can the Democratic Party just resonate more with Latinos and make sure that they keep their vote there?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, so you know, Latinos still voted for Democrats over Republicans, two to one. Um, in this election. And in many of these close races where people said that the Latinos were going to go for this more Trumpist right wing candidate. In fact, they they did not. And so this red wave everybody pr- predicted was more of like a little red puddle. Um, but we still can't ignore the fact that there are more working class voters of all backgrounds that are trending away from the Democratic Party, including working class Latinos, especially working class Latinos outside of our big cities. Um, uh I spent time uh, campaigning um, on, in the border counties uh, uh, coming up to the general election. And to me, it's clear that some of that separation of the vote are, are two things. One, there's so much Republican investment um, in winning over those voters and the Democratic investment is not matching it. Uh, and you can't win. You know, you don't win if if the other team invests over and over and over again and then you take your side for granted. So you can't win. That way, Um, I think that Texas 15, which was gerrymandered to become a little bit more Republican, uh, be a Trump voting district, uh, I still think we could win at this next election if we actually match the Republican investments in that race. That district, just for folks watching or or listening, uh, stretches from Guadalupe County, so it touches the southeast part of my district, all the way down to McAllen. Um, And it was districted to be a little less Latino and a little less Democratic, so a Republican won. Um, But the D pulled out of that race um, and the national Republican committee doubled and tripled down on that race. So we have to invest so that you can get your message out. But then also I think we have to focus. We, I don't think we step away from the social issues. If you look at the best polling of Texas Latinos on issues of reproductive rights, they're with the democratic party. They're not with governor Abbott's abortion ban, but for working class folks, those economic issues are also so important and the idea that the Republicans are somehow better on the economy if you're a working class person just does not ring true to me when you look at the policy platforms, right? Um, so I think we need to really focus on the, in, in the past, right? The Democratic Party, if folks, folks ask what it is, who is the Democratic Party, what's it about? People would say it's the party for the working person. I don't think enough people think that anymore. And so I think that when you really need to get a message out about raising people's wages, about standing up for their benefits, about making sure that you know that uh, we're not just taking care of the folks at the top of the economy, but that if you're trying to pay the mortgage or pay the rent, the Democrats are with you. I think that um, will win over so much of the Latino vote that is shaky. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, along those lines, I mean, one of the byproducts we saw of the uh, the COVID-19 pandemic was that we saw higher than usual numbers of people leaving their jobs, tr- looking, you know, looking at other, other possibilities for themselves, what people have referred to as the Great Resignation. And, you know, a lot of your your work has been on, uh, concerning uh, workers' rights. And uh, I just wonder if you look at, at this situation, because we, we did have a labor shortage coming out of, out of this pandemic or coming through this pandemic, do you look at this as now a situation where um, workers have more leverage it's than they've so had? So much more.
2: So much more. And- um, uh, right now we see an unprecedented wave, um, or unprecedented, at least in my lifetime, let's put it wave of people organizing in their workplaces. Mm. Uh, I was recently delivering meals on wheels, uh, meals, <laughs> mm. uh, in Converse, mm-hmm. uh, uh, knocking on folks' doors, uh, you know, obviously the overwhelming majority of those meals to seniors. Um, and I, uh, knocked on the door, went on one door and was waiting for Miss Carter, you know, age. In her eighties to answer the door. It was actually her grandson who came in and answered the door. And he said, I recognize you from Instagram. I've been meaning to send you a note because I work at Amazon and we're talking about how it is that we can organize for better conditions um, uh, at my workplace. And you have to see those conversations happening all over. Um, where before it was, you know, kind of a more rare thing for you to get a new union. Um, now people are kind of organizing all over the the country. So I hope to support that because Regardless of who controls the house, uh, people can see increased wages and improve working conditions if we support them organizing at work. Because what we say in the labor movement is, you know, if you're not bargaining, you're begging. Uh, and we can actually get workers to be bargaining for for higher wages right now. Um, and, and I think that it's, you know, some of that has to do with the mismatch between jobs and job seekers. But I think a big part of it also has to do with um, this sort of resurgence of the labor movement. To me, the Starbucks organizing isn't just about Starbucks. Um, It's about how visible it's been for people around the country. Uh, Because in places like Texas, there are a lot of people who say, oh, I thought there's laws against me having a union. I thought there's laws against me having a contract that protects my job. There aren't. There's laws trying to make that harder for you. Um, But it's still your right. And so people hearing about Starbucks, I think, helps change things in workplaces around the state.
1: I've seen some uh, stories where they – Lumping all the progressive freshmen as like the new squad, the new version of the squad. But – and it, it, they're meant in a way that's positive. But is that a way that it can you can also be pigeonholed or be seen as, you know, if you're progressive that you can't be pragmatic, for instance?
2: Right. Th- yeah. You know, that always happens, right? There, there's alway, You're always trying to sort of be put in a box because people are trying to understand you all over the country. Um, but what I found during orientation is you can have relationships with everybody, right? You can get written about or described in different ways. But at the end of the day, what you get done is also based on your ability to to relate to your to your colleagues and to your peers. And so I did my best to really get to know everyone in my freshman class that includes members that are significantly more conservative and significantly more progressive. And part of what we really try to talk about is the fact that we represent different districts, somebody, there's members in my class that are representing a district that Donald Trump won. Um, My district, right, we overwhelmingly didn't voted for President Biden. And so for us to recognize, okay, that means that you are going to have to probably take certain positions to best represent your constituency. I won't be upset at you for that. I'll try to convince you of my point of view, but then also don't be upset when we fight for progressive values and talk about how the you know people aren't able to pay their rents, and that we you know can't let corporate landlords tr- drive up the rent needlessly. Or and then there's some issues that honestly we all connected on as a as a fundamental um, as a fundamental issue that we could all agree on and all be a little bit more assertive in pushing. Part of what I think was so important about the new members like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, what they did was not just prog- about being progressive, but about um, Being more fearless with what it is that we care about. I think that's why she's inspired so many people. And so my first press release as a member elect was we heard from my constituents uh, that they weren't, uh, that there were unsafe working conditions and their claims that they weren't paid what they were owed while constructing the Tesla Gigafactory. Uh, And so we stood with them saying, we support a full Department of Labor investigation to make sure that if... You weren't paid what you were paid, or if there were dangerous conditions, there should be accountability for that. When I was there at freshman orientation, doesn't matter if you were a more centrist member or a more progressive member, people um, said they were excited about things like that because they all want to be fearless. Because we all came up in this time where we saw, you know, the capital being stormed by insurrectionists. You know, so there's a certain sense of responsibility to not just wait around. Nobody, nobody in this class. I'm not saying this about anybody, but it really felt like folks in this class didn't run for Congress because they like really wanted to just move to D.C. and be a member of Congress. Right. We all saw the went through the pandemic. We all saw the January 6th insurrection. We all were mostly elected officials during the Trump era who are going to go do something. And so if we're branded anything, I hope it is about us being a a really mission driven, impatient group and. Um, And and I think for my constituents and folks I talked to in San Antonio, nobody said, hey, I want to see government move a little slower or, uh, hey, I I want you to uh, really bide your time over there and move up. Right. People have a sense of urgency. And I think that might be the thing that kind of unites the group.
0: Sorry, can I ask a question real quick? I apologize. You're talking about being a new freshman member of Congress. Uh, We're political junkies here and I always I've always loved politics, but I'm also a DACA student. I've been here for like uh, 27 years. In 97, I think Bill Clinton passed that really disastrous immigration law. then in, in 07 or 08 was the Bush tried to pass right. that uh, Immigration Act. My whole life has been like, yeah, yeah. Something's going to happen on immigration. Yeah, how are, do you think you're going to remain hopeful knowing that that's been the history on, and I'm just using immigration as an example, but like politics is politics, how do you think you're going to stay hopeful throughout your tenure?
2: Part how I hope to stay. Well, the reason I'm hopeful is because there really is no other choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that if we despair, um, um, that's OK if you feel full of despair. But then I probably should go do another job um, because uh, the, the o- this is the only Congress we have. So this is the only place where immigrants can get the relief that they need. This is the only place where we can fix the Supreme Court. So it's not taking people's rights away, but actually adding to people's rights. It's the only place you can, uh, legalize abortion or same sex marriage nationwide. It's the only place to do it. So I'm, um, I'm hopeful because that's just what I have to be, but then I have to stay inspired. I think by the stories of people, um, who believe in us and who count on us, um, Uh, So so some of the family members of some of the murdered children in Uvalde were there in D.C. uh, with me uh, as we held an event for them asking for an assault weapons ban. Um, And uh, that isn't uh, the story of Uvalde is a a story of despair. It's a horrific story. Um, And the only reason I hold out hope for an assault weapons ban is because I have to because it has to get done because lives are on the lives are on the line. They were there joined by family members. Uh, from Parkland and family members from the Pulse Nightclub and family members from Silver Spring. Uh, So it is totally rational to feel a lot of despair that that many shootings have happened and we still aren't that much closer to an assault weapons ban, which used to be a bipartisan thing in the 90s. Um, But we have to hold on to some inspiration because it has to get done. On immigration, same thing. There's been just so many times that people have said they get something done and nothing's gotten done. But if the option is then feel despair and not do anything, then that doesn't help anybody. So, so I have to hold on to to hope and energy.
0: I want to ask you about something which I I always think of as something that should have bipartisan appeal. It should be able to, and 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 maybe in, in some states this has been the case, but uh, you've talked about the legalization of marijuana at the federal level. And I just, again, I just think that that's at this point it should be a bipartisan issue. There's so many, there's so many arguments in in favor of that. Um, And I think recently uh, Senator Hickenlooper from um, Colorado introduced uh, a bill um, that would, I guess, create like a regulatory call for the creation of a commission, which would, could maybe establish a regulatory framework for, you know, a post uh, uh, legalization uh, United States. What are, what are your, is this an issue that you're going to, that you're going to Emphasize when
2: you're. Yeah, I'm. I'm pro legalization. It makes so much sense on so many levels, right? Why waste all of these criminal justice resources uh, on on chasing somebody around for having a joint when you could use those resources on actually keeping people safe and adjudicating justice? It's a racial justice issue because we know that uh, black and brown folks, and especially black folks, are arrested and jailed at such a higher rate when you know folks use marijuana equally across groups Uh, and um, you know, if you check out my social media, don't read too far into the comments, but we've got some right wing haters and that's okay. Everybody, everybody can, I I appreciate that people can express entirely express where they're coming from and disagree with me. But the day that I passed uh, an author, the policy that ended um, the criminalization and police resources on uh, chasing down folks for personal marijuana in Austin, suddenly all of those folks commented and said, Wait, I think I actually agree with you on this one. Thank you. (laughs) Um, And, and then we worked actually to make, um, move that to become a ballot measure that recently passed in San Marcos and Hayes County by overwhelming numbers. Um, I'm in conversation with folks to say, Hey, let's, you know, get that on the ballot in, in San Antonio or have the San Antonio City Council pass it. It's overwhelming. I mean, it's just something that's overwhelming. So I just. There's something, there are a lot of things, some things, there's a lot of things I'm going to learn in the Congress. And one of them is going to be to go talk to my friends on the other side of the aisle and say, what's the deal with this one? I mean, this one should be easier. (laughs) I mean, you guys, I'd be fine having one of their names on the top of the bill if we could get it done. But that, but, but that and broader criminal justice reform, I think that, um, you know, there has in the past been bipartisan support for things like ending no knock warrants and these other um, criminal justice issues where you're, ta- where you're really talking about, uh, a more limited government approach and using our resources on really addressing safety. Um, and so personal, so yeah,
0: personal privacy, personal liberty. I mean, those are things that, that on the political right are appealing concepts or should be. right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, exactly. And so to me, um, I'll maybe again. Maybe this is a way for me to invite myself back. I'll I'll let you guys know what they say.
0: (laughs) Great Kassar, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Congratulations again and uh, good luck in Congress. Thanks so much, y'all. Take care. And thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week.